This is Songwriter, the podcast of stories and answer songs. My name is Ben Arthur. Today, we have a brand new song from my friend Matt the Electrician. But first, the story that inspires the song. I'm Sarah Heppola, and I'm a writer living in Dallas, Texas. People hear my story and they want to feel sad for me, and I'm like, no. And then sometimes people want to be happy for me, and I'm like, no. And it's just, I, don't, I can't explain. It's like, it's just a life. <laughs> it was one of the first things that I can remember knowing about myself was that I loved drinking and I was really good at it. And so alcohol was this bridge to adventure and bridge to social connection. It was bridged at most everything. By the time I was in my mid-30s, I was learning that the opposite was happening, that I was losing all of those things. The bridge, you know, the drawbridge was coming up, you know, like I was losing relationships. I was losing self-respect and esteem. And so I had to quit. So the book is about someone who fell in love with alcohol and why she had to fall out of love. Blackouts were a unique plague of my own drinking. I I would lose time. People confuse blackouts with passing out, but passing out is when you're asleep. Blackouts, you're still walking around and talking to people, but your brain's not putting it into long-term storage. You're just, you're not recording it. I think I drank because it made me feel invulnerable. I think I drank because it gave me the feeling that I was protected. And then what's so interesting And what I was trying to explore in this book is the way the feeling can be different from the action or the reality. You know, a classic example is like you feel like you're a great dancer when you're drinking and you are not. You're not a great dancer. It didn't change the way you danced. It changed what you thought of your own dancing. You know, I basically come out of a blackout having sex with somebody and I don't know who the person is, and it's this outrageous scenario that like if I saw it in a movie, I'd be like, that would never happen, but it happened to me, so I can tell you that it happened. If you drink as much as I did, there's a numbness to it. You're so distanced from what the emotional cost of some interplay might be, whether it's sex or yelling at somebody or a fight with somebody, you're just you're just sort of not there. And so it doesn't feel vulnerable. It might be insanely vulnerable like walking out on the edge of a building, vulnerable. But it doesn't feel that way. Here's Sarah Heppler reading from her memoir, Blackout. I'm in Paris for work, which is exactly as great as it sounds. I eat dinner at a fancy restaurant and drink cognac, booze of kings and rap stars. Somewhere near midnight, I tumble into a cab with my friend, and the night starts to stutter and skip. How did we get back so fast? I walk through the front door of my hotel, alone. It's that time of night when every floor has a banana peel, and if I'm not careful, I might find my face against the ground, my hands braced beside me. I exchange a few pleasantries with the concierge, a bit of theater to prove I'm not too drunk. The last thing I hear is my heels steady as a metronome, echoing through the lobby, and then there is nothing. This happens to me sometimes, a curtain falling in the middle of the act, leaving minutes and sometimes hours in the dark, but anyone watching me wouldn't notice. They'd simply see a woman on her way to somewhere else, with no idea her memory just snapped in half. It's possible you don't know what I'm talking about. Maybe you're a moderate drinker, 
who babysits two glasses of wine and leaves every party at a reasonable hour. Maybe you're one of those lucky people who can slurp your whiskey all afternoon and never disappear. But if you're like me, you know the thunderbolt of waking up to discover a blank space where pivotal scenes should be. My evenings come with trapdoors. I don't know how much time I lose in this darkness or what takes place. When the curtain lifts again, this is what I see. There's a bed, and I'm on it. The lights are low. Sheets are wrapped around my ankles, soft and cool against my skin. I'm on top of a guy I've never seen before, and we're having sex. Ah, oh, hold on. Can this be right? I'm having sex with a man, and I've never seen him before. It's as if the universe dropped me into someone else's body, but I seem to be enjoying it. I'm making all the right sounds. I collapse beside him and weave my legs through his. I wonder if I should be worried right now, but I'm not scared. I don't mean to suggest I'm brave. I mean to suggest you could break a piece of plywood over my head and I would smile, nod, and keep going. The guy isn't bad looking. You really know how to wear a guy out, he says. It seems unfair that he should know me and I don't know him, but I'm unsure of the etiquette. I should go, I tell him. He gives an annoyed laugh. You just said you wanted to stay. So I stay with the stranger in the shadows of a room I do not recognize, looking out onto a city that is not my home. As I lie in the crook of his arm, I have so many questions, but one is louder than the others. In literature... It's the question that launches grand journeys, because heroes are often dropped into deep, dark jungles and forced to machete their way out. But for the blackout drinker, it's the question that launches another shitty Saturday. How did I get here? I was a freelance writer, which meant I spent most days hungover in front of the TV. I watched talk shows about all the things that could secretly harm me. My soap, my boyfriend, my diet. I remember one segment about roofies, or date rape drugs. This was 2007, but I'd been hearing about roofies since the late 90s. Odorless, colorless substances dropped into a drink to erase memory, like something out of a sci-fi movie. Every once in a while, motherly types, including my actual mother, worried I might be vulnerable to this invisible menace. In fact, I had a different drinking problem, although I wouldn't have used the word problem, at least not without air quotes. One morning, I woke up in the living room of a good-looking guy's apartment. The last thing I remembered was talking to my friend Lisa the night before. She held both my hands. Do not go home with that guy, she said. And I said, I promise. And then I went back into the bar, and he ordered us another round. This was the kind of excitement I wanted from a single life in New York. The kind of excitement I was hoping to find when I left Texas at the age of 31. I wanted stories, and I understood drinking to be the fuel of all adventure. The best evenings were the ones you might regret. I had sex with some random dude and woke up on a leaking air mattress, I texted my friend Stephanie the next day. Congratulations, she texted back. Awesome. High five. These were the responses I got from female friends when I told them about my drunken escapades. Most of my friends were married by this point. Sometimes they wondered aloud what being unattached in their thirties would be like, careening around the city at 2 a.m. Once, 
I'd gotten so blasted at a party, I woke up in a dog's bed, in someone else's house. Do you think you got roofied? My friend asked me. Yes, I told her. I think someone slipped me ten drinks. I did worry I drank too much. Actually, I'd worried for a long time. I slipped in a club one night and bashed my kneecap. I fell down staircases, yes, plural. Sometimes I only skidded down a few steps, gravity problems, I used to joke. And then a few times I sailed to the bottom like a rag doll. I knew blacking out was bad, but it wasn't that big of a deal, right? In my twenties, friends called with that hush in their voice to tell me they'd woken up beside some guy. Oh, not just me, thank God. In my early thirties, I used to have brunch with a sardonic guy who bragged about his blackouts. He called it time travel, which sounded so nifty, like a supernatural power. I was laughing about my blackouts by then, too. I used to joke I was creating a show called CSI Hangover because I would be forced to dig around the apartment like a crime scene investigator, rooting through receipts and other detritus to build a plausible theory of the night's events. But there's a certain point when you fall down the staircase and you look around and no one is amused anymore. As I inched into my thirties, I found myself in that precarious place where I knew I drank too much, but I believed I could manage it somehow. I was seeing a therapist, and when I talked to her about my blackouts, she gasped. I bristled at her concern. Everyone has blackouts, I told her. She locked eyes with me. No, they don't. For many years, I was confounded by my blackouts, but the mechanics are quite simple. The blood reaches a certain alcohol saturation point and shuts down the hippocampus, part of the brain responsible for making long-term memories. You drink enough, and that's it. Shut down. No more memories. Your short-term memory still works, but short-term memory lasts less than two minutes, which explains why wasted people can follow a conversation from point to point, but they will repeat themselves after some time has passed, what a friend of mine calls getting caught in the drunkard's loop. The tendency to repeat what you just said is a classic sign of blackout, although there are others. Your eyes go dead like a zombie, a boyfriend once told me. It's like you're not there at all. People in a blackout often get a vacant, gazed, glazed overlook, as though their brain is unplugged. And, well, it kind of is. Although some people learn to detect my blackouts, most could not. Blackouts are sneaky like that. There's no definitive way to tell when someone is having one. And people in a blackout can be surprisingly functional. You can talk and laugh and charm people at the bar with funny stories of your past. The next day, your brain will have no imprint of these activities, almost as if they didn't happen. Once memories are lost in a blackout, they can't be coaxed back. Simple logic, information that wasn't stored, cannot be retrieved. Some blackouts are worse than others, though. The less severe and more common form is a fragmentary blackout, or brownout, which is like a light flickering off and on in the brain. Perhaps you remember ordering your drink but not walking to the bar. Perhaps you remember kissing that guy, but not who made the first move. Then there are the on-block blackouts, in which memory is totally disabled. Those were a specialty of mine. Sometimes the light goes out and does not return for hours. I usually woke up from those blackouts on the safe shores of the next morning. The only exception was that night in Paris, when I zapped back to the world in the hotel room. I didn't even know that could happen. One of the many reasons the night stayed with me so long. 
Aaron White, an expert on college drinking and a senior scientific advisor at the U.S. National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, explains that it's not a particular type of drink that causes a blackout. I always thought it was brown drinks, whiskey, cognac for me. It's the amount of alcohol in the blood and how quickly you get to that level. Fragmentary blackouts seem to happen at a blood alcohol content around 0.2%, while on-block blackouts happen at around 0.3%. White also says that while roofies aren't a myth, studies suggest the fear outpaces the incidents. It turns out that being roofied often doesn't involve roofies at all. People just don't realize how common it is to experience a blackout. I was particularly at risk, but I didn't realize it. Blackout drinkers tend to be the ones who hold their liquor. I'm five foot two, yet I matched a six foot three inch boyfriend drink for drink. I made genius decisions like skipping dinner, trying to cut calories, because I was always scheming my way back to the size six dresses in the back of my closet. And I'm female. Alcohol metabolizes in our systems differently. Our bodies are often smaller, and a higher body fat percentage means we get drunker faster. The panic started when I noticed the time. It was almost 2 a.m. Shit, my flight leaves in a few hours, I said. Actually, the flight wasn't until 11 a.m., but I understood there was not nearly enough time between then and now. The awfulness of my circumstances began to dawn on me. As I left, the click of the lock's tongue in the groove brought me such relief. The sound of a narrow escape. I was on my way to the elevator when I realized I did not have my bag. My passport, my money, my driver's license, my room card. I did not have my way back home. I turned around and stared at the line of doorways behind me. Shit. They all looked the same. Which one? I don't know how long I stood in that hallway. Ten minutes, ten years. I sank down on the floor, and when I finally stood up, I had a plan. Bonjour, I said to the concierge. Good evening, he said. What can I do for you? I left my bag in someone's room, I said. Not a problem, he said, and began tapping on the computer. What room was it? I shook my head. I don't know. Not a problem, he said, more tapping. What was the guest's name? A tear slipped down my cheek, and I watched it splat. I don't know. He nodded, his mouth an expressionless line. But I could see the pity in his eyes. He felt sorry for me. And somehow, this pebble of sympathy was enough to shatter my fragile reserve. I crumpled into tears. Don't cry, he said. He took my hand. His fingers were dry and cold, and they swallowed mine. It's going to be okay, he said, and I believed him, because I needed to. Is it possible the gentleman is the one you were talking to at the bar tonight, the concierge asked. And there it was, finally, my first clue. Of course. I'd gone to the hotel bar. Yes, I pretended. That is definitely the guy. So you saw me with him tonight? He smiled. Of course. He handed me a new key to my room. He told me he would figure out the guy's name, but that he might need an hour or two. I don't want you to worry anymore, he said. Go rest. Hey, what's your name? I asked. Jackson, he said. 
I'm Sarah, I told him. And I took his hand with both of mine. Jackson, you are the hero of my story tonight. Not a problem, he said and flashed a smile. As I headed towards the elevator, I felt like a new woman. I had a chance to restore order, to correct the insanity of the night. Jackson would find the guy's name. I would meet the guy downstairs, suffer the indignity of small talk, then take my stuff and bolt. No, better yet, Jackson would knock on the guy's door and retrieve the purse himself. I I didn't care how it happened, just that it happened. It was all going to be okay. I walked back into my room, and there, to the left of the entrance, on an otherwise unremarkable shelf, was my bag. I had lost so many things in my time. Scarves, hats, gloves. But what amazed me was how many things I did not lose, even when my eyes had receded into my skull. I never lost my phone. I never lost my keys. Part of this was simple survival. You could not be a woman alone in the world without some part of you remaining vigilant. How did my bag get to my room? I have no idea. Only that even in my blackout state, I made sure that my treasure was tucked away safe. A woman locking up her diamond ring before she leaps into the ocean. I called the front desk. You are never going to believe this, I told Jackson. My bag is in my room. I told you this would work out, he said. And you were right. I changed into my pajamas and curled into a fetal position under the covers. Maybe I should have been relieved, but I had the haunted shivers of a woman who felt the bullet whiz past her face. Now that my crisis was resolved, I could start beating myself up for the ways I'd failed. Such a wretched place to be, alone in the dark with your own misery. The phone rang. I found a leather jacket in the bar, Jackson said. Do you think it's yours? And here comes the part of the story I wish I didn't remember. Jackson stands in my doorway. He's so tall. He must be six foot two. My leather jacket is draped over his arm like a fresh towel. I stand there with my hand on the door and wonder how much to tip him. Can I come in? He asks. And there is not an ounce of me that wants him inside my room. But he was so helpful to me earlier, and I, I, I can't scheme quickly enough to rebuff him. I step back from the door and give him entry. I'm still thinking about the tip. Would five dollars be enough? Would a hundred? He closes the door and walks to my bed. It's not far from the entryway, but each step reaches a great chasm. You broke my heart when you cried earlier tonight, he said, sitting down on the mattress. He's only a few feet from me, and I remain with my back pressed against the wall. I, I know, I'm, I'm sorry about that, I say, and I think, who's manning the desk right now? Are we going to get in trouble? He leans forward on the bed, resting his elbows on his knees. I was thinking a beautiful woman like you should not be crying, he says, and puts out his hand for me to take. I'm not sure what to do, but I walk over to him as if on autopilot and let my hand hang limply against his fingertips. You are very beautiful, he says. Oh, Jackson, I'm really tired, I say. It's been, it's been a really long day. I think if I tell him to go, he'll probably stand up politely and walk out of the room without saying more than a few words. 
So why don't I? Do I feel I owe him something? He pulls me towards him and we kiss. The kiss is neither good nor bad. I consider it a necessary penance. I can't explain it. How little I care. All I keep thinking is, it'll be easier this way. We lie in the bed, and I let him run his hands along me. He kisses my nose, now wet with tears he doesn't ask about. But he never asks for more. At 4 a.m., I push Jackson out the door. I climb into my bed and cry huge, howling sobs. Real drunks wait and watch for the moment they hit bottom. As I lay in my hotel bed, covers pulled up to my neck, I felt the gratitude of a woman who knows finally that she's done. But I drank on the flight home. And I drank for five more years. A life is bookended by forgetting, as though memory forms the tunnel that leads into and out of human body. I'm friends with a married couple who have a two-year-old. She's all grunt and grab, a pint-sized party animal and a polka dot romper. And we laugh at how much she reminds us of our drunken selves. Any hint of music becomes a need to dance, spinning in a circle, slapping her toddler belly, one eye squinted as though this balances her somehow. I recognize this as the freedom drinking helped me to recapture. A magnificent place where no one's judgment mattered. My needs were met, and my emotions could explode in a tantrum. And when I was finally spent, someone would scoop me up in their arms and place me safely in my crib again. I wonder sometimes if anything could have prevented me from becoming an alcoholic, or if drinking was simply my fate. But I've come to think being an alcoholic is one of the best things that ever happened to me. Those low years startled me awake. I stopped despairing for what I didn't get, and I began cherishing what I did. Nobody remembers a life completely. We're all forgetting all the time. But isn't it some basic human instinct to hold on to as much as we can? If you're lucky, you will wake up and remember this. I did. That was Sarah Heppala reading from Blackout. And now, the song written in response. My name is Matt Sever. I perform under the name Matt the Electrician. I've always thought of myself as kind of a half-assed Renaissance man. Like, I've never really focused on any one thing long enough to get really, really good at it. I definitely, in my in my former drinking life, you know, I had some blackout moments and some things that I don't really remember. There was one that occurred at a at a party. I remember a lot of the day, but there was a point there was a point in the day where I I kind of came to and I was holding a shovel and I was tr- and I was trying to attack like one of my best friends with a shovel. That was a startling moment, not knowing kind of how you got there and maybe in that moment realizing that you needed to kind of pretend like you knew how you got there I don't think I I don't think I have an issue with the friend that I was trying to kill with a shovel I think that there was you know I was given some some false information by the chemicals in my brain mixing up with all of the alcohol and the sunshine and everything else over the course of the day and and 
and there I was. I may have been angry about something else and angry at somebody else entirely, and he was the guy there, and that was the shovel there. My, my rock bottom was, was getting very wasted and coming home very, very late and yelling at my pregnant wife. And it wasn't specifically physically violent, but it was enough that it, you know, waking up the next morning and just having that image in my head. You know, it was just that realization. Like there was, my daughter was asleep in another room and my wife was pregnant with our son. And I just remember waking up and thinking like, I can't do that. Like I can't, like I can't, that's not a, that's not a man. Like I'm not, I'm just a child. If that's what my life is, then I don't, I don't get to have all these other things. The downbeats disappeared, had popped into my head, so I wrote that down. It started to kind of occur to me that this felt like it, it was about missing memories. You want to try to approach the subject while at the same time just kind of keeping it in your peripheral. You might start to write about something else, but at a certain point your own experience kind of takes over. We both have had experiences with addiction and with memory loss related to that. By the time I'm finishing the song, it's, it's fairly interchangeable in my mind. This is an excerpt of the first song that Matt wrote called Stranger. But as so often happens in the creative process, Matt found that he wasn't quite done. I liked the first song that I wrote, but I wrote it based on this, this excerpt from a book that I hadn't read. I found Sarah's book on our bookshelf because my wife had, had bought it several years earlier. So I read the whole thing and I was just so inspired by the book as a whole, like taken as a whole, the, the story of her journey kind of from childhood all the way through to sobriety. Um, so I wrote a, a, ne- a separate song uh, that I felt spoke to some of the things from the book, but then also kind of my own experiences. And it just kind of came out of me. Uh, a lot of it came very quickly. Like most songs, the first part especially came real quickly, and then I labored on, on some of the other stuff. This is Matt the Electrician with his song, I Disappear, written in response to Sarah Heppola's Blackout. Party's not over till I disappear I let it take over me I stole all your laundry Drank all your beer I guess I was raised to be bitter Picked up a shovel and swung like a sword I missed you so suddenly I fell over fighting, spitting up words And everyone thought I was kidding And I broke down and cried, 
so hard for myself In the middle of the street, I looked down over me. I thought I never knew I felt like this. I never knew I felt like this. I was thin in the middle and high up above. I held you so heavily. You asked if we had. Done anything bad? I lied and said I don't remember. I lied and said I don't remember. Nice to see you, see you again. It feels like it's been years. It's nice to see you. Let's pretend that we were never here. Well, the party's not over till I. Disappear. I fell down incredibly and waited for what I don't know to appear, and the sky did nothing at all. The sky did nothing at all, and I broke down and cried so hard for myself. In the middle of the street, I looked down over me. I thought I never knew I felt like this. I never knew I felt like this. I never knew I felt like this. That was Matt the Electrician with his song, I Disappear, written in response to Blackout by Sarah Heppola. Matt's newest album will be out on November 5th. You can get more information at mattheelectrician.com. And Sarah is writing a new book about being single in her 40s. You can hear more at sarahheppola.com or at her Instagram, The Sarah Heppola Experience. The next episode of Songwriter features a reading from Nicholson Baker and a song written in response by Rod Picot. Songwriter is a part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network, along with some other great podcasts. Make sure to check out americansongwriter.com forward slash podcast. And you can always get early access to the Songwriter Podcast at Paste. Just go to pastemagazine.com and search for Ben Arthur. And while you're there, check out the Paste Podcast or get it wherever you get yours. Last, thanks to Rob Reinhardt and Acoustic Cafe.